All right, well, as you're having a seat, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, to the passage that was just read for us, Ephesians chapter 4. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. Utilize that resource in the very beginning of your Bible to navigate this big book, to find your way to Ephesians, which is a little letter that we've been studying over the past couple of months. And our ordinary practice in the life of the church is to walk through books of the Bible like this and, and just explore what God has for us in his scriptures and in his word. And so here in Ephesians chapter four, we're jumping into kind of the middle of this letter. As we've been studying the book of Ephesians, we've been doing so under the theme, the church, the grace made visible. Uh, We want to, and our intention behind studying this book is to find ourselves falling in love with being the church all over again. That we do not believe that the church is a place, which is why we can gather in a gym. Uh, We believe the church is people. It is you and me together following Christ. And and so we want to fall in love with being the church all over again. And we want to see, as a result of studying this book, our affections for the church and our understanding of the church to be elevated. We want to recognize by faith the centrality of the church to the purposes of God in the world. And the book of Ephesians helps us do that in a myriad, a myriad of ways. Well, we come now to the middle of this book, chapter four. Ephesians is six chapters long. We wrapped up chapter three last week. And when you step into chapter four, you're gonna notice a remarkable transition. A remarkable transition that occurs in this book signaled by one of my favorite words in the Bible. And it may surprise you because it's not a very exciting word. It's not a a word that we understand to be theological. But the way Paul uses this word in this book is to unpack a lot of theology for us, to help us understand what it means to live the Christian life together in the church. Now, I've known lots of Christians who like to take Bible words, uh, particularly like the Hebrew version of words in the Old Testament or the Greek versions of words in the New Testament, and they like to turn them into tattoos. Uh, so that can be dangerous because sometimes they get the word wrong. But uh, this is one word that nobody ever gets tattooed, but I think it'd be a great word uh, because it's only three characters long in the Greek language. It could go on a pinky. It'd be a lot cheaper than a lot of the other <laughs> tattoos that people get. And, and it's this word, translated translated in your Bibles as therefore. And it's a powerful word the way, in the way in which Paul uses it in the New Testament. This word therefore anchors our approach to the Christian life and what God has done for us as opposed to what we can do for God. Paul uses this word like that in a few of his letters that he writes in the New Testament, one of which is the book of Romans. If you've ever studied through or read through the book of Romans, you're going to find one of the most exhaustive uh, descriptions and explanations of what the gospel is. And the first 11 chapters, Paul is doing that. He's unpacking the gospel for his readers. But then once you get to chapter 12, you run into this word, therefore, He's saying, now that you know the gospel, therefore, this is the difference it should make in your life. This is the way you should go about your days in the world that is. And he does the same thing here in Ephesians. The first three chapters, he's laying out these gospel realities. He's declaring what's true about those of us who are trusting in the gospel and what's true in as it relates to what God has done for us in Jesus. And only now in chapter four, after he lays that groundwork, does he transition into what might be called ethical teaching or how do we live now kind of teaching. And so from chapters four to chapter six, Paul's gonna get very practical and he's gonna deal with a lot of areas of life that flow from our understanding of what the gospel is. 
And so I love the word therefore because it anchors, it anchors our approach to the Christian life and our approach to Christian community in what God has done for us and not necessarily what we do for him. And there's a big difference between uh, what we might call gospel that that speaks to and what our culture and our world refers to as religion. You see, religions like to tell us that our relationship with God is based on those ethical dynamics, that our relationship with God is based on what we can do for God and how we live our lives in this world. And what they do is they flip. They take chapters four, five, and six, and they put, it, they put it first, and then they lead with, they'll say, well, if you do these things, then you can have a right relationship with God. Then you can be accepted by God. But that's never the gospel sequence. The gospel sequence is always God has done this, and in light of what God has done, you live your life now. And you live it not out of a a must-to fear, if I don't get this right, God's going to squash me. You live, you live your life, and a God has been very good to me. God loves me like crazy. He's been gracious towards me, and now I'm going to let my life change, and I'm going to do the things that, that the gospel calls me to do. Why? Because I want to, not necessarily because we have to to be accepted by God. And so when you think about this word, therefore, again, it's hearkening back. It's a hinge word that says, remember everything that Paul has said up to this point before you move forward in chapters four, five, and six. And I want to show you some of the things that God has done for us that Paul has mentioned, some incredible truths that he's declared over the church. Chapter one, verse four, listen to what God has done. Chapter one, verse four, we, are, we learn there that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Saying before God even created us, he chose us to be his. He set his affections upon us, saying, I want you. I want you to be in fellowship with me. That, that's something that God did. But then you look at chapter 1, verse 5. God predestined us to be his children and his heirs. Meaning we now relate to God not simply as our creator, but as our father. And as the children of God, by faith in Jesus, we are now heirs. So everything that belongs to God passes to us, his children. He blesses us richly in that kind of way. But then you keep reading, chapter one, verse seven, we learn that God sent Christ to atone for all of our sin. That means he sent Jesus to deal with our biggest problem. Our biggest problem in this world isn't the stuff that's outside of us. Our biggest problem is the stuff that's inside of us. The sin that separates us from the God who created us and the God who loves us. And so that's a problem that you and I can't deal with. We can't cover our own sin. We can't hide it from God. He's well aware of it. And so what he decided to do was he planned to send Jesus into the world. And Jesus stepped into the world to cover our sin, to deal with that within us, to love that sin out of us, which is what he did when he goes to the cross and he died as an atoning or a covering sacrifice for his people. God did that for us. But then we keep, keep on. Chapter 1, verse 13. God sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He's given us the gift of himself. He's saying, look, I'm not only going to do this for you. I'm going to come and dwell within you. And so he gives us his Holy Spirit, sealing us by his presence and by his power to preserve us for all of eternity. This is why we can know that we're going to step into heaven one day. Because our entrance into heaven isn't ultimately dependent upon how well you and I live the Christian life. Our entrance into heaven is dependent upon what God has done for us in Jesus 
and the gift and the presence of the Holy Spirit that he's given to us, preserving us all along the way. Then you see in chapter two, verse four, he reminds us that God has done all of this. He's saved us in this way by his grace. Grace is one of the most beautiful words in all of the English language. And it's one of the most beautiful realities that you'll ever think about, that you'll ever get a hold of. That word grace means that God is good to us even when we're not good to him. That God is good to us even when we're not good to one another. He's saying, look, I'm going to be good to you despite you. That's what grace means. And God has saved us by grace, meaning because he is good, not necessarily because we are good. God did not look down at the world and say, okay, who are the best people and whoever are the best people, the most moral people, the most ethical people, the most unified people, those are the ones that I'm gonna bring to myself because they are good enough. No, he looked at the world and he saw everyone in trouble. But he also looked at the world and his heart was full of grace for the world and that heart full of grace flowed out into the world through the person and the work of Jesus to rescue and to redeem us by his grace because he is good, not necessarily because we are good. And then you keep on, chapter two, verse seven, God promises to increase our enjoyment of that grace from from now and forever. I love chapter two, verse seven. God declares, I promise, I'm gonna make you enjoy my grace forever. And over the course of time, as you grow as a Christian, you're gonna find yourself enjoying God's grace all the more. Because to mature as a Christian doesn't mean that you grow up and you grow beyond your need for grace. It doesn't mean that you grow up and you grow beyond your need for the gospel. To mature as a Christian means you become increasingly aware of the sin that you needed to be saved from. And you become increasingly aware of the grace that has redeemed you so that you live your life humbled by that reality, enjoying the fact that every good thing that comes into your life, it comes into your life as a gift of God's grace. It doesn't come into our lives as a result of our works or our good deeds. That's what grace is. And as you mature as a Christian, as you grow up in your faith, you're gonna find yourself enjoying grace more than anything else in the universe. It's a remarkable reality. But then we go on to chapter two, verse 15. We're told there that God made us into a new humanity, meaning he took different people. He took different types of people and he put them together to form one new humanity, one new society that would make his grace visible to the watching world. This is why in the church we find unity in the midst of our diversity. This is why to be Christian has nothing to do with your ethnic identity. To be Christian has everything to do with your faith in Jesus. And when we put our faith in Jesus together, We share a bond that runs deeper than blood. We share a bond that runs deeper than our respected ethnic identities and our respected cultural backgrounds. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are bound together by something eternal and something life-changing. And Jesus, God, he makes us a new society, a new people in that way. So Paul's been laying out these incredible truths, saying this is what God has done for you. And then he gets to chapter four and he makes this transition And notice what he says. He says, therefore, in light of all of these things, I want you to live your life as a loved people. I want you to live as a loved people who have received the grace of God. So he says in verse one of chapter four, therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, Paul was in prison as he was writing this, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. In light of these realities, go and live. And I want you to live in a particular kind of way. I want you to live in a way that would glorify God and would honor all that Jesus has done for you. Now, 
There's one way that you can read verse one that might bring some anxiety into your life. And it's the type of message or it's the type of understanding that we see reflected in a movie called Saving Private Ryan. I've shared this with some of you before, but I think it's worth sharing again. If you're familiar with Saving Private Ryan, you know the plot centers around a captain named John Miller who leads, leads, leads a squadron to rescue a private named James Ryan. And in the process of rescuing this private, John Miller, the leader of the expedition, as he was going in to rescue this, this young man, he lost his life. And there comes a point where John Miller is lying in James Ryan, Ryan's arms and he looks up at him and, and he says, earn this, earn it. And then after he says that to him, we flash forward to many years later when an older John Ryan, James Ryan, comes to visit Miller's grave. And as he's standing over the grave, he's thinking about the life that he was freed and saved to live from that point on. And listen to how he describes the moment. He's talking to Miller at the tomb, and he says, every day I think about what you said to me on that bridge. I've tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned what all you did for me. And then in a moment, he starts to break down, and he begins to weep over the, over the tomb, and he turns to his wife, who was standing there with him, and he looks at her and says, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I am a good man. Now, I want you to think about what's going on in that scene. Can you imagine living your entire life wondering, wondering if you were worth the sacrifice someone else made for you? Can you imagine living your entire life wondering if you were worth the sacrifice someone else made for you? That can put some pressure on, right? That can cause some anxiety. That can cause some stress. That can cause some regret. That can make one very insecure all the days of their lives. Am I living up to the sacrifice that was made for me? Well, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus did not die so that you could live your life proving your worth to him. That's not why Jesus sacrificed himself for you, not so you could live under that pressure, live under that restraint, live under that dynamic of saying, I must now prove my worth to God by how well I live the Christian life. That is not why Jesus died. Jesus died to declare your worth to him, to say you are already valued by God. You are already worth the world to God. This is why Jesus died. So when we live the Christian life, and we live a life that is worthy of the calling we have received. It's not a life that we are living to prove ourselves to our God. It's a life that we were living under the pleasure of our God who says you're already valuable, you're already loved, you're already worth, worth everything, so much so that I gave my son for you. This is why Jesus died, and this is the life that we're being called to live. And this changes how we approach the Christian life. It means we start living the Christian life out of gratitude. It means we start living the Christian life out of joy. It means we start living the Christian life out of freedom and liberty that Jesus died to give us. We're not under pressure. We are set free. We've been given new life. And everything that we do, we do as a result of what God has done for us and as a result of what God has done in us. And so this is our approach. And when you step into chapter 4, actually chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul's going to unpack different ways that this should show up in our lives, ways in which we live now because of what God has done for us. 
Not to prove anything, but just to be who God has saved us to be. And there's lots of things that you're going to see him cover over the next several weeks. The first thing he takes up, though, the first thing he takes up in verses 1 through 4 is this dynamic, 1 through 6, is this, this dynamic of unity. He says, as you learn to live in light of the gospel, as you learn to live in light of the God's grace towards you, this is a life that you are to live together, that you are to live in a unified fashion. Now, I don't know how important unity is to you and your understanding of the Christian faith. If you're a hyper-individualistic Christian, unity isn't very important. If you think your relationship with Jesus is all about you and Jesus and really nobody else, then this isn't going to be very important to you. And, and I'm sorry, but you're mistaken in your understanding of what the Christian life is all about. So much so that, let me, let me ask you this, or not ask this, let me just say this, if Whatever a person prays about when they know they are about to die, that's when you know something's very important, or at least something's very important to that person. What you hear someone praying about when they're on their deathbed or they're about to die, that's going to elevate your understanding of how important something is, right? Well, on the night just before Jesus was betrayed, and the night just before he was arrested, the night just before he was sent to trial, and the night before he was crucified on a cross, Jesus goes and he takes some time to pray. And he talks to his heavenly father. And you can read his prayer in John chapter 17. And what you're going to find in that chapter is that was keynote in Jesus' mind. And what was resting heavy upon his heart was the unity of his people. That just before he dies, he prays for his people to be unified. This is how important unity was to Jesus. I'll give you a couple of examples. John chapter 17, verse 11. Jesus prayed, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. That is, they may be unified, even as we are one. Then again, in chapter 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is about to die and he thinks to pray and what he thinks to pray concerns the unity of his people. He wants us to live in harmonious, tangible relationships with one another. And he goes on to say that the more you and I sink into this dynamic and we allow this to flesh itself out in our churches, more people are going to come to know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Savior of the world. And so unity then becomes very, very important. And I would say that Jesus puts such a high premium on unity that if you or I are ever contributing to the disunity of the church, we should be deeply unsettled. Our conscience should be deeply bothered. Jesus puts too high a premium on the unity of the church for us to dismiss it or to belittle it as something that is insignificant or unimportant. And there are a couple of ways that you and I can do that. We can contribute to the, unity, the disunity of the church in one of two ways. We can do so in a passive fashion. And the way we contribute to the disunity of the church passively is by not sinking into community by holding the church at an arm's length, by not getting involved in real relationships with real followers of Christ, not bringing your gifts and your talents and your skills into the body of Christ to help build up the body and contribute to the health of the body and to be an active part of the community. If you're more passive, if you are disengaged, if you are not involved, you may be contributing in a passive way to the disunity of the church. 
The body is lacking because of it, and that's not good. But then we also, and this is perhaps most common by those of us who are actively engaged in the church, is that we can contribute to disunity in an active fashion. And a lot of times, this active contribution doesn't happen because we are scheming in a back room somewhere. It happens because we're not walking in humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering with, other, with one another. And so instead, we get into community with one another and something happens and all of a sudden we are holding grudges. We start holding grudges against those who commit minor slights against us. We offer unjust criticism in our conversation and in our evaluation of others and of things. We take our personal preferences and we elevate them above gospel principles and we say, okay, well, I think things should be done like that. And although it's not gospel, we hold to it as if it's gospel and that puts a wedge between us and the people that we are talking about or the system that was put in place by someone. But then there's another dynamic where we harbor bitterness in our hearts towards those who have wronged us or who have slighted us. And rather than dealing with it or letting it go, we just let it fester. And the more we let it fester, the more division, the more distance is created between us and our fellow brother or sister in Christ. And that type of disunity is the type of disunity Jesus hates. Jesus died so that we would be in unity. He died so that we would live in harmony with one another. So let me ask you, how seriously do you take the conviction of unity? How serious is this conviction to your Christianity? Do you hold it as seriously as you hold, say, marital fidelity? And you believe, well, if someone's married, then they should be faithful? Do you hold unity that high? Do you hold this conviction as seriously as you hold, well, something like financial impropriety, that if the church is going to be given money, then the church better be faithfully, better faithfully steward that money to serve others and let the money go to where it should go and those types of things? Do you hold this conviction of unity as high as you hold some of these other things that we tend to get passionate about? Well, I think according to John 17 and I think according to this passage in Ephesians 4, we need to elevate our conviction of unity. And what's interesting about unity is that as you read through the New Testament, believers are never told to become one. The scriptures declare that we are already one, but the scripture does tell us that we're expected to, to act like we're one. To use Paul's language in this passage, we are to maintain unity. We are to actively pursue harmonious relationships with one another. And there are two ways we can maintain unity in this passage Two ways that you and I can maintain unity in this church and even foster it and maintain it with our relationship with other churches in the city and other churches around the world. The first way is this. We maintain unity by cultivating gospel graces. We maintain unity by cultivating gospel graces in our lives. In other words, we allow the gospel to make us like Jesus. And what you're going to see are four graces laid out in this passage that, that are a lot like Jesus. Four graces that remind us of Jesus and that should be reflected in those who pursue Jesus and trust in Jesus. The first grace is the grace of humility. This is one of my favorite ones because humility is a virtue that Christianity created. The reason why humility is valued anywhere in this world is because Jesus came into the world and he promoted humility. He valued humility. You understand in the first century, if you called somebody humble, that was an insult. No one wanted to be described as humble because that meant lowly. But then Jesus came in and he took that understanding and he flipped the script on it. He said, no, I want you to know that to grow up in the kingdom of God means to get low. 
To be great in my kingdom means to serve, to get over yourself so that you can do so. This idea of humility, of where we live our lives knowing our place in this world. And our place in this world is not as creators. Our place in this world is as creatures. And as creatures, we've been created in the image of God, and that's true of every human being on the planet. As creatures, we are sinners separated from God. That is true of every human being on the planet. And as sinners, we can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And that is true of everyone who is believing in the gospel, and it is true of everyone who will believe in the gospel. It, this type of understanding levels the playing field of the world so that human beings should not view themselves as superior or inferior to each other. Human beings should instead stand shoulder to shoulder in light of these realities. That's what humility does. Humility is knowing one's place. Humility is saying, I am not God. Humility is saying, I am not perfect. Humility is saying, I am not better than another human being. And of course, when Jesus took this value and he redeemed it and he reclaimed it, he was building off of what God had revealed to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Humility is extolled highly in the Old Testament. I'll give you a couple of examples. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, this is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. A very similar thing is found in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2, when arrogance comes, disgrace follows. But with humility comes wisdom. So there we're told arrogance leads to disgrace. Humility leads to wisdom. Why is that? Well, it's because humility makes us teachable. Humility says, I have a lot to learn. And when I step into a family of faith, I'm going to seek to learn. That's what humility does. I want to learn that I'm not God. I want to learn that I am a sinner. I want to learn that God's grace is enough for me. And so we want to be teachable. That's what humility is. I learned this the hard way last week. This past week, I took my daughter, eight, my eight-year-old daughter, Delaney, snow skiing for the first time. Now, I grew up in Louisiana. Louisiana doesn't have hills or mountains. It's flat. There's no skiing there except water skiing. But my sister and her family, they've been skiing, snow skiing for quite a while now, and they invited me and Delaney to come along because my, daughter, my sister's daughter wanted somebody to ski with, and so we went. And, and my sister's married to a very ambitious guy. He's a former quarterback at the University of Memphis. He can do a lot of things. He's talented. He's skilled. He's been, he's been skiing since he was a little bitty boy. And, and so when I showed up, and I said, okay, what do I do? I've never even put on skis before. And he, do I need lessons? And Callie was trying to talk me into getting lessons, but Andy interjected and said, no, you don't need lessons. Just come with me and do what I do. And I said, okay. And so the first day, I strapped up. I followed him, kind of waddled up to the, to the lift and went up to this little minor green and and he went down, no problem, of course. And then I went down with a lot of problems. And I, I went down more than once. I just fell over and over and over again, lost my skis. I got up, put them back on, tried again, fell again. Fell like three times that first trip down. And, and he said, okay, let's do it again. I said, all right. So I followed him back up, and we went round two. Round two went a lot better. I didn't know what I was doing. I don't know how I made it down, but I did make it down. And, and after that second route, he looked at me and said, okay, we're going to go to the big lifts. And my sister Callie was warning us because she's wise. No, you should not go to the big lift yet. And, and I was naive and arrogant enough to think I can handle it. So I followed him to the lift that took us up to a blue. Now, if you've ever skied before, a green, blue, black uh, kind of shows us the degree of difficulty that you're skiing down. And blue is kind of that intermediate area. And that's where he took me for some reason. Now, 
I said I've never skied before, but about 20 years ago, I don't think this counts. This is why I said that. About 20 years ago, I went to a place called Sugar Mountain, North Carolina. And Sugar Mountain, North Carolina isn't really a mountain. It's more of a hill, and they don't have snow. They just make their own snow, and you can kind of, well, I did that at Sugar Mountain, North Carolina. That was my only experience about 20 years ago. When I got off that lift, and I was on this blue, this blue strip, I, I looked at my brother-in-law and said, look, man, this is not Sugar Mountain, North Carolina. And... <laughs> And he said, no, it's not. Let's go. And he took off. And then I fell after him time and time and time again. And eventually I fell and busted up my rib. And I'm not even a quarter way down the mountain. And I'm, I'm pulling myself to the side, kind of near the tree line. And I'm sitting there. I can't get up. And I have to call a paramedic. And the snow patrol has to come and strap me up in a sled and take me down the mountain. It was humiliating. Uh, but that's, that was, in my mind, disgraceful. I was embarrassed. I was arrogant, and that's what went down. All the while, my sister was telling me, you should have, you should have went and got real instruction, real instruction. You should have went and got taught how to do this because that ruined the whole day. And quite honestly, it put a wedge between me and my brother-in-law. As I was kind of upset with him for taking me up there, and he was kind of upset with me for getting upset with him, and my pride, his pride, was just dividing us from each other. It was not a good moment. And so I learned this message the hard way, that when, arrogant, when arrogance comes, disgrace follows, but with humility comes wisdom. Why is that? Because humility is teachable. Humility says I have a lot to learn. I'm not an expert in this thing called life. And when you become a Christian, you step into, you assume a teachable posture. And there's a lot of things you're going to have to unlearn when you become a Christian because, quite frankly, some of you have been taught some really bad things about what life in this world should be about. And so you step into the Christian life and you have to unlearn a lots, lots of things so that you can relearn gospel things. And your life can be changed and transformed and humility can grow. But not only does he say humility here, he also uses this word gentleness. Now, I love the word gentleness because that's the only word that Jesus ever uses to describe himself. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus never says, I am loving. He never says, I am merciful. But he does say, I am gentle. He does say, I am meek, which is another translation of that word. You see this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is who Jesus is, gentle Jesus. Now, to call Jesus gentle doesn't mean he was weak in any discernible way. You know Jesus wasn't weak. He was God in the flesh. He created the universe. And he's not weak, but what he is is gentle. And gentle is this dynamic of saying, okay, I'm really strong, but I'm going to use my strength in the service of others. I'm going to use my strength to activate redemptive activity and power in the world. And so you see this gentleness of Jesus, this strength under control every time somebody offended him and he didn't retaliate. It takes strength not to retaliate when somebody offends you. This is why when he's dying on the cross, he looks upon those who are crucifying him and insulting him, and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It takes gentleness. That's a gentle Jesus doing that. That is strength under control. This is the kind of Jesus who who would be both tough and tender all the days of his life, where on one hand he's hugging children and he's receiving kids into his presence and he's not annoyed by them, he's not being disgruntled by them, he receives them, he blesses them, but then in the very next page he steps into a temple and he turns over tables. It was a strong Jesus who was kicking tables over in the temple and he was doing that because he knew what was happening there was belittling human beings. It was oppressing people. And so in gentleness, strength under control, he came in and just cleaned house in a, 
in a way that would point people towards the kingdom of God. And so the reason why I think Paul says gentleness here is because this is the type of strength that must be under control in the church. That if we're going to walk in unity with one another, we have to get to a point where we're strong enough not to retaliate. We have to be strong enough to forgive each other when someone offends us or wrongs us or steps on our toes. We must be strong enough or gentle enough to forgive and to refuse retaliation. But it also means we want to be firm in what we believe about the gospel. We want to be firm in what, we, what it means to treat people with dignity and respect and gospel realities. And so Jesus was humble and he was gentle. And here Paul is saying, you now are to be humble and you are to be gentle. But then he says, patience. A third gospel grace here is patience. Now this is a tough one because usually what tests our patience is people. And so when we step into community with one another, our patience is going to constantly be tested because all of us are works in process. But a patient person understands that and a patient person is willing to wait for progress to be made in a person's life. We don't cut ties from one another because we're not quite there yet, because we don't fully understand something or can do something. We, we don't cut ties in those ways. We show patience with one another, recognizing that that's how Jesus related to us. It's how he treated us. And then you have this fourth grace. In addition to patience, you have long-suffering. Now, long-suffering simply means to put up with people. It means to put up with each other. It's hard to be in community with other sinners, it's hard to be in community with people who aren't fully mature yet, but we are committed to long-suffering with one another, to putting up with each other, to loving one another through thick and thin. Long-suffering is a lot like what Peter writes in his letter where he says, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. That's what long-suffering does. Long-suffering doesn't keep a ledger. Long-suffering doesn't keep a ledger saying, this is how so-and-so wronged me, this is how so-and-so wronged me, and that list just keeps building and building and building until eventually there's an explosion. No, long-suffering recognizes that love covers a multitude of sins, which means love learns to let things go. This means we don't have to take each other to the mat every time we are wronged or every time we are offended. We don't have to address everything. We don't have to call out everything. That's not what love does. There are some things that do need to be addressed, but there are a lot of things that don't need to be addressed because love covers a multitude of sins and we are long-suffering with one another. This is how we promote unity. If we're constantly calling everything out, we're gonna lose patience with one another and we're gonna give up on one another. We're gonna grow cynical. We're gonna grow suspicious. We're gonna grow distant from each other, but this is what... These graces are designed to prevent. And so if we're going to maintain unity among us, we need to pursue these gospel graces of humility, gentleness, patience, and long-suffering. In a word, we need to pursue Jesus because Jesus is humble, Jesus is gentle, Jesus is patient, Jesus is long-suffering. And the more we are pursuing Jesus together, as a byproduct of that pursuit, we're going to become humble, we're going to become gentle, we're going to become patient, we're going to become long-suffering. These are the graces that we cultivate so what this means is you don't cultivate these by saying, okay, I'm going to become humble this week. I'm going to become gentle this week. I'm going to become patient this week. I'm going to become long-suffering this week. No, you cultivate these graces by hanging out with Jesus, by pursuing relationship with Jesus, knowing that relationships change people. And no more important relationship in your life is your, than your, is your relationship with Jesus. And so you pursue Jesus, you let him rub off on you. You get to know Christ and let him 
transform you into a humble, gentle, patient, long. You might even not even notice that this is happening in your life, but I guarantee you it is. We are always growing as we're getting close to Jesus. And that's how we cultivate these graces. But then there's one more dynamic to this idea of unity. We not only maintain unity by cultivating gospel graces, we maintain unity by affirming what's called gospel realities. Now, this is a little bit more challenging because some of us have this understanding that if we're going to be unified, then we shouldn't talk about anything of substance. We shouldn't talk about something called doctrine or theology Let's just focus on relational dynamics like humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering, and, and we'll be fine. Let's, just, let's don't go high. Let's don't go deep. Let's just kind of stay with each other in a relational kind of easy way. But Paul doesn't do this in this passage. He shifts gears in verse 4, and he starts talking about gospel realities. He's saying, look, what really unites us together isn't just our relationship with each other. What unites us together is our understanding of what the world is all about. In our understanding of who God is and who we are and all of God's purposes, that's what draws us together. These doctrines, these gospel realities. This is why J.C. Ryle would warn us. He'd say, you know, unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. Just getting along with people ultimately is a worthless dynamic. He says unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. He says it is the very unity of hell. Hell is a unified place as those are unified in their rebellion against God, unified in their rejection of God, unified in their insistence upon self rather than the Savior, that is a unified dynamic, and he says that is a worthless unity. So what brings us together is our understanding of these essential gospel realities, these truths that are major and and essential to our understanding of the Christian life. Now, there are a lot of things that that set Christians apart from each other by way of their practice and by way of their understanding of the Bible, but these are things that shouldn't separate a single Christian or a single church from each other. We're not talking about, did Adam have a belly button? It's not that kind of thing that people might disagree upon and love talking about. That's not what Paul is addressing here. He's talking about essential realities, gospel realities, un unnegotiable realities, and he lists seven of them, and I'll just run through them very quickly. The first one is one body. He emphasized the oneness of the body, and this is a metaphor for the church. And what Paul is getting after here is what's called the universal or the global church, this body of Christ that is comprised of every gospel-believing people and every gospel-believing community that exists on the planet. They make up one body from God's perspective. This means that the Christian life isn't an individual life, But it also means that the Christian life isn't about individual churches either. So what it means as an individual Christian is I step into community with other Christians, but then together as a church, we step into community with other churches around the world because we're part of one body. We're not exclusive. We are not independent. We are interdependent with other families of faith, with other churches around the world. This is why when I received an email last week about these five Venezuelan pastors, who are being forced to leave that country right now and they're en route to Seattle, Washington. It is this reason that that I would say to you and ask you to prayerfully consider if you have the means and the resources and the ability to take one of these families into your home and to help them make the transition into a new place as they've been forced out of their country. If you know anything about Venezuela right now, it's not a good scene. It's chaotic, it's in turmoil. And these pastors have been forced out of their out of their country, and we were asked, hey, do you have anybody in your church who can help care for one of these pastors and their family? 
Every one of them are married and they all have at least one kid. And I said, we will certainly bring it to the body because we're all part of this one global family of faith. And so if you have the means or the resources to open up your doors and to welcome one of these pastors and their families into your home, and we will work with you to support you in helping care for them, and we will work with them to help them get settled and transition into a new life, understanding that all these pastors are very mature in their faith, and all these families love Jesus, and all these families actually have the mentality that says, look, if God and his sovereignty is forcing, is, is, if he's sovereign over our being kicked out of Venezuela, then we're going to bloom wherever we're planted. And so each one of these pastors want to see, won't want to plant churches wherever they land, and we could have the opportunity and the privilege of helping plant a church that, that ministers to these dispersed Venezuelans in this city and in this region. So I would encourage you to prayerfully consider that dynamic, for we are one body. This means that we share more meaningful commonalities with Christians of another race than we do with non-Christians of our own. That's what it means to be a part of this one body. We take care of each other. But then we go on, not only one body, he says one spirit meaning that every Christian shares the same common origin of the Spirit's work. When the Holy Spirit opens our heart to receive the gospel and believe the gospel and to see the beauty of Jesus, that everyone who confesses Jesus is Lord, that is the work and the activity of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And there is one Spirit that we are all benefiting from. There's one Spirit who is at work in our lives. And so to understand this doctrinally, when you think about the Holy Spirit, it's important that you recognize that the Spirit is not a power that for we don't refer to the Spirit as it. The Holy Spirit is a person. He has emotions. He has passions. He has a will. He has a purpose. And so we relate to the Holy Spirit as we are relating to a person, for that is who the Holy Spirit is, a person, not a power. And we'll talk about more about that as the weeks go on. One Spirit. But then he mentions one hope. He's saying every Christian, everyone who believes the gospel, they share the same hope, the hope of a future resurrection when we are brought back to life and giving new bodies and we inherit the earth and we step into the new heavens and the new earth in this recreated world. This is our hope. This is why we can encourage one another and support one another when we're suffering in the world that is because we know a better world is coming. This hope is something we have in common. There's also one Lord now, the Lord there is in reference to Jesus because we know that Jesus is Lord. Now, to say that Jesus is Lord was a big deal in the first century because if a person said, okay, Jesus is Lord, they were at the same time saying Nero is not. Nero was the ruler of the Roman Empire and Christians were persecuted a lot because they said Jesus is Lord. And by affirming Jesus, whether they never said Nero is Lord or not, they would reap the consequences. But this is something that we all share in common. We confess Jesus as Lord. This is what it means to be a Christian. We say, Jesus, you're God. We're not. We say, Jesus, you're in charge. We're not. We say, Jesus, you are Lord. You are ruler. We are not. This is what we say as Christians, and all of us say that. To be a Christian means to say and to confess and to believe that Jesus is Lord, that he's in charge. But then he goes on and says, there's one faith. It's one faith in Christ and all that it entails to follow Jesus, this is something that we share in common and that we encourage each other in. But then he mentions one called baptism. He says one baptism. Now, this is a funny one because some of us think, because baptism is one of the things that sets churches apart from each other. There are some churches that practice what's called believer's baptism, which is what we practice, where a person puts their faith in Jesus and we step into the waters and we immerse them and we baptize them in that way. Perhaps you've seen that. 
But then there are other churches who believe in what's called infant baptism, and they, they baptize their infants, their newborns, and they kind of make a promise to raise this child up in the covenant or an understanding of the gospel. And, and so that, that, that puts a wedge, it seems, between churches. But understand when Paul talks about one baptism here, he's not talking about mode. He's not necessarily talking about believer's baptism or infant baptism. When he uses the language of baptism, he's speaking metaphorically. The word baptism signifies our union with Christ. This is why he can say there's one baptism because every Christian has been united with Christ. They've been baptized in Christ. Meaning when we became a Christian, we were crucified and buried. Our old self died and we were raised to walk in newness of life. That's what baptism is all about in this text. And it's why we practice it the way that we do. It's why we talk about it the way that we do. But ultimately, Paul here is not talking about a mode. He's talking about meaning. And he's saying baptism represents union with Christ. And that's what every Christian on the planet, every church on the planet shares this in common. But then he moves on. Not one baptism. He also then comes to a climax when he says there is now one God and Father. He's saying that every Christian shares the same heavenly Father that there is one God and Father. That's who we worship. That's who we serve. And this one God and Father is sovereign over everything. He's a heavenly Father. And we rest in that. We rejoice in that as his kids. Now, when you look at that list, there's an interesting Trinitarian dynamic to it. You see a reference to the Holy Spirit. You see a reference to Jesus, Lord. And then you find this reference to God the Father. Because as Christians, we believe the world was created by one God who eternally exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is unity in the Godhead. And it's the unity in the Godhead that should be reflected in the unity of the church. Now, I know this is deep, but this is very, very important. In the Godhead, you understand that there's unity between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit without confusion. That the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. They are unified, but they are not confused with each other. But then it also means that there's distinction within the Godhead without separation. Once again, the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit. There's distinction between each person of the Trinity, but that distinction is not separation. That means the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are always on the same page. They're always executing one purpose. They're always loving one church. They're always engaging in all things in, in unity. And so we're learning that the unity of the Godhead is to be reflected in the unity of the church. This means that we believe in unity, not uniformity. This is why when you become a Christian, you don't all of a sudden change your wardrobe necessarily. We don't all start wearing white shirts and black pants and riding bikes everywhere. We don't do that because we're not a cult. We are Christians. We are the church. There's unity among us, but not uniformity. But then there also means that we respect the distinctions between us without separation. So we can agree to disagree on things that don't fall under these seven essentials of the faith. We can agree to disagree about the type of music that churches should play. We can agree to disagree about the way lighting should be in a worship gathering. We can agree to disagree with, between how a church should be structured and how a church should serve their city. We can agree to disagree about those things. But we can't agree to disagree about the oneness that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4. So there's distinctions between us, but that doesn't mean separation. And we need to hold on to that. We need to believe that if we're going to think about what it means to be a unified people. All this boils down to just one statement that I want you to think about. Unity in the church is a matter of both the head and the heart. Unity in the church is a matter of both the head and the heart. It has to do with doctrine and it has to do with character. 
It has to do with creed or belief, and it has to do with virtues and values. Both of those go together if a church is going to achieve or maintain the unity that's being called for in this passage. This means practically as a church that we want to take doctrine seriously. We want to take it seriously. We want to think theologically. We want to learn sound doctrine and believe sound doctrine together. But it also means we want to pursue Christ's likeness. We want our hearts to be transformed because if you have doctrine without desire, if you have the head without the heart, you, you're going to become a rough people. You're not going to be very gentle. And perhaps you've seen people who know a lot of doctrine, but they're not very humble and they're not very gentle. They're not very patient. They're not very long-suffering. It's hard to be unified with that person, right? Despite the fact that you may believe the same things as them. But then the same thing, if you have heart without head, if you have desire without doctrine, you're just a community club. You're just friends, but you're not an eternal family because it is the doctrine that declares our familial relationship. And so we want to become like Jesus in our hearts, but we want to, as we're thinking deeply about the truths of the gospel and the realities of the gospel, that unity can't really exist if, if you have doctrine or desire if you have creed or character, unity can only exist if you have both at the same time. If you're cultivating gospel graces and you are affirming gospel realities, and that's what we're going to do in this church. We're going to affirm gospel realities and we're going to cultivate gospel graces. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you?